0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church, Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So today I'm going to look at one more angle about what it means to be generous, and it's something that I think we've probably all thought a bit about this week, where they're consciously or not. I'm sure loads of you have been similar to me, checking the news, watching the news, checking social media, probably more so than I have done in ages, becoming experts on the map of Ukraine and what parts of that map are shaded different colours. It isn't to say that the thing that's going on in Ukraine is more important than other events. There's been a lot of talk around Chelsea, um, Chelsea's owner Roman Abramovich being sanctioned and therefore Chelsea may be having to be taken over by somebody else, but very little chat about the fact that Newcastle were relatively recently bought by Saudi Arabian owners who are currently at war in Yemen using arms, let's not forget that they've bought from the UK government, or people have been talking a lot about sanctions failing to address the fact that there's a lot of people who have been calling for very similar sanctions to be put on Israel because of the treatment of Palestinians, and we can't forget about Afghanistan, which was the war we were all talking about not just a few weeks ago. So this isn't to say that this is the only thing that's going on at the moment, but it is prevalent, isn't it? It's right at the front of everybody's minds this week. So off the back of that, today we're going to look at how can we be generous to those who want to do us harm? How can we be generous to our enemies? This is Miroslav Wolf, who's one of the greatest living theologians, and he tells a story about a conversation that he had with Jürgen Moltmann, who was one of his teachers, also a great theologian. It was 1993, and Wolf was giving a lecture. He got to the end of this lecture, and he said, anybody got any questions? And Jürgen Moltmann stood up, and he said, can you embrace a setnik? It was 1993. Asetnik was a Serbian soldier. Miroslav Volf is Croatian. And after the breakup of Yugoslavia, Croatia and Serbia were in the middle of the Balkan War, a bitter war about Croatian independence. Tens of thousands of people died. Half a million people became refugees. And it was in the middle of this that Maltman asked that question. Can you embrace Asetnik? Miroslav Wolf said it took him ages to answer. A setnik, he said, as far as he was concerned, was the ultimate other, the opposite of him. They had destroyed cities in his home country. They'd burned down churches. They'd herded people into concentration camps. Could he? Could he embrace a setnik? Eventually, he answered, no, no, I can't, he said, but as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. I love that answer. I love this answer because it's real, isn't it? It's real life. He was standing there in a university hall full of Christians, full of theology students. It would have been so easy for him to say, yes, of course, well, Jesus forgave, didn't he? Jesus embraced all, so of course I could. But actually, real life is more difficult than that, isn't it? No. No, I couldn't embrace a setnik, but I am working on it. Leo read to us from Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 10. Jesus tells an expert in the law that he should love his neighbor, and the expert in the law says, well, who is my neighbor? The word neighbor here in the original Greek is ho which means more than just the person who lives next door to you. If we look back at Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58, it's the story of John the Baptist being born, and it says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. The word neighbors in that part of Luke's gospel is ho perioikos, which is the word that was used for people next door. Placeion is a different thing. It's broader than that. It's wider than that. So basically what's happened here is this expert in the law, this guy is trying to figure out who's in and who's out. Who is going to inherit eternal life? And who does God count out? Who does God exclude? Because everybody had their own idea of who the good people were and who the bad people were. For example, the Pharisees, they thought that they were definitely in. But ordinary working class people, they were out. And for most Jewish people, Samaritans were definitely out. A bit of historical context for us. A thousand years before Jesus tells this story, the Jewish people and the Samaritans had been the same people. They were all the people of Israel. They were 12 tribes of the people of Israel, and their king was King Solomon. But after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over, the 10 northern tribes broke away and created their own kingdom with their own king, a guy called Jeroboam. The 10 northern tribes became known as Israel and the southern two tribes were known as Judah eventually the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and a bit later They were taken into exile and some of those who survived the exile became known as the Samaritans Now the Samaritans thought that they were the true Inheritors of the tradition of Abraham and Moses, but if you spoke to anyone in the southern kingdoms they were heretics And Jewish and Samaritan leaders wouldn't even allow their people to have anything at all to do with each other. They hated each other. A while ago we had a sermon series about Nehemiah and how he rebuilt the city walls in Jerusalem and how important that was to the whole Jewish story. But the Samaritans not only opposed this, but built their own temple not too far away. Some Jewish rabbis used to teach that if you received anything from a Samaritan, this would delay the redemption of Israel. There was even a law in the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish equivalent of Parliament, which said no Jew need trouble himself to save the life of a Samaritan. That was written into law by the religious leaders. And here you have Jesus... Talking to a very Jewish audience and telling them the story of a good Samaritan. If we were telling this story today, maybe we might base it in a Protestant bit of Belfast and talk about the good Catholic. Or maybe we'd keep the setting the same, but we would talk about a good Palestinian, a good member of Hamas. Or maybe we'd base it in Kiev and we'd talk about the good Russian The Russian who generously saves the day. That's the kind of emotion that this story would have stirred up in the listener. As far as Jewish people were concerned, there were no good Samaritans. And then we get to the end of this story, and Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. This is one of those small little details in the Bible, which I love, the one who had mercy on him. Even after all this, after all the story that Jesus has told, after all the explaining of all of this, the Jewish people still can't believe bring themselves to it. The expert in the law cannot bring himself to say the word Samaritan. The answer to that question is the Samaritan, isn't it? But he cannot bring himself to say it. All he can say is the one who showed mercy. On Thursday last week, I met a guy who came down from Manchester to spend a bit of time with us here in Waterloo. He heads up the Violence Reduction Unit in Manchester and we've been doing some work about trauma-informed practice and how we reduce violence in this local area and so I spent a couple of hours with him just walking him around and explaining to him how the kind of joined upness of what we do here works together and how that can have an impact on violence reduction. So we're working in the hospital in the accident and emergency department and what happened there, as lots of you will know, is that anybody between the ages of about 12 and 25 who comes into a and because of an issue with aggression or violent crime, maybe they've been stabbed, they get referred to one of our youth workers, and then the plan is that stops this retribution. You don't get stabbed on a Friday night, go out and then on Saturday night stab the guy who stabbed you. This long-term mentoring works, but it doesn't just work in isolation. It works because we might meet with these kids and we say, oh, what are you into? And they say, "I we to into football. And we're like, oh, well, we've got an under-15s football team. Do you want to go and play football for our football team? And then they meet some of our other youth workers. Or maybe they might join the school here. Or maybe it turns out that their parents are really struggling because they're in debt. And we refer them to our debt advice center. And through that, we realize that they need food. And so we refer them to the food bank. And it's the whole joined-up nature of this work that makes a difference. And so this is the story that I was talking about with the guy from the Violence Reduction Unit in Manchester, and he talked to me about the relationship that our teenagers have with the Met Police in this area. And I said to him, yeah, that can be tricky. He said, I'm not sure that trust in the police from teenagers has ever been as low as it is at the moment. And I said, I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, we used to run a football team called Hub Athletic. And we used to employ a project manager to run this football team, coach the kids, organise the team, put the team in the league, all that kind of stuff. It's meant to be about football, but basically it's about character development. It's about behaviour management. These kids come in and we say to them, unless you're on time for training, you're not going to play on Saturday because... If you don't turn up to a job interview one time, you aren't going to get a job. That's the kind of aim of it. It's not just to put out the best football team. And we were looking to employ a new project manager for this. And somebody had interviewed or somebody had applied for this job, and we'd asked them to come for interview. And they had been one of our players years ago. So we knew a lot about this kid. We knew a lot about his background. We knew a lot about the struggles that he had had with the police for example, and one of the questions that we asked this kid in the interview, kid, he was about 25 by this point, point. one of the questions that we asked this man in the interview is a, a, a scenario question, and we said, right, it's a Friday night, you're training the under-15s team on the local pitch, there's four guys, and they turn up, and they're standing on the side of the pitch, you think you see a knife, and they're shouting out to one of the players in your team, what do you do? In all these interviews around kind of youth work stuff, you always ask a question which is about safeguarding, to see if they can pick up that this is a safeguarding concern, and then they should say, oh, you know, it's safeguarding policy, we'd refer to whoever the designated safeguarding lead is and do all this kind of stuff. But this specific incident, if you see a knife, it's serious enough that obviously, what's the first thing that you do in that situation? You call the police. But this man sitting in this interview could not bring himself to say that. He was experienced. He'd gone off. He'd studied. He had a degree. He had loads of experience in this area. He was a good youth worker. He knew exactly what it meant. He knew exactly what this question meant. But because of the relationship that he had had to the Met Police growing up, he could not bring himself to say that. I think the expert in the law is experiencing exactly the same emotion that that young man had and exactly the same emotion that Miroslav Wolf experienced in that story I said at the beginning. He knows the answer, but he just cannot bring himself to say it. There's too much baggage. There's too much history. There's too much hurt. There's too much emotion. He knows what he should say, but he cannot say it. And this, I think, is where it gets interesting for us, because it would be really easy to have sat here or watched online for the last couple of months and thought, yeah, that's right, I really do need to be more generous. But then it's really easy, isn't it, myself included, for the sermon to end, we go and have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, put the laptop lid down, and our rest of our life, the rest of our week, we carry on unchanged. That's why I think there's another really interesting verse here. In verse 37, it says, The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus' response is, Go and do likewise. Not, You have answered correctly, well done, go on with your day. Go and do likewise, change your behavior. What does it mean? What does it actually mean to love our enemies, to be generous towards our enemies? I saw this photo earlier on in the week. Has anybody else seen this? It's been shared quite a lot on social media. It's a Russian soldier who's been captured by the Ukrainian resistance. And he's drinking a drink and he's looking at a phone that one of the Ukrainians gave him so that he could FaceTime his mother back in Russia to tell her that he's okay. That, right there, is real generosity. That's what generosity looks like in action. Imagine how easy it would have been in that situation to choose violence, to choose retribution, To say, your country is destroying my country, so we are going to get our own back on you. But no. No. Instead of choosing the destructive path of retribution, instead of choosing to repay violence with more violence, which just leads to more violence... These Ukrainians repay violence with love. They repay violence with generosity. Here's a drink. Call your mother. She'll be worried. That, for me, is where generosity becomes real. In a drink and a phone call. But I'm aware that this is a massive story, isn't it? It's global geopolitics. How do we translate this to us, to individual lives, to individual relationships that we might have? There are those of us who are closely linked to this story, aren't there? We watched the video of Sasha, who lots of us here will know and know well. But most of us are separated from the reality of this story. So what does it look like for us To show generosity to those who harm us. This is a photo of Eric, June, and Faith Fitzgerald. Faith was 19 months old when Matt Swaffle, who was 20 years old and shattered after a long shift as a firefighter paramedic, Matt fell asleep at the wheel and he crashed his car into the car that June Fitzgerald, the mum, was driving. Faith survived, but June, who was also seven months pregnant at the time, she died. Eric, the husband, was obviously heartbroken, but so was Matt, who had caused the accident. He said, I'm supposed to be a helper. I'm a paramedic. I'm a firefighter. They're meant to be the ones who help in situations like this, not the ones who cause situations like this. Prosecutors approached Eric Fitzgerald to see what he wanted to do. Did he want to pursue the maximum sentence against Watson? Put him in jail forever. But here is what Eric Fitzgerald said. I remembered somebody said this in a sermon. In moments where tragedy happens or even hurt, there's opportunities to demonstrate grace or to enact exact vengeance. Here was an opportunity where I could do that. And I chose to demonstrate grace. That must have been a really difficult thing to do, mustn't it? Because there's got to be a part of you which says, I am in pain. I want him to feel pain too. I want him to experience something of what I'm going through. So I'm going to push for the maximum possible sentence. How many times have we done something like this? Well, we know that the better response is to forgive, to show generosity, to move on. But we can't quite bring ourselves to do it because we want what we think is justice. That person must pay for how they treated us. But then later we realize that the person who's really being punished is probably ourselves because a lack of generosity, a lack of forgiveness can eat us up from the inside, In moments where tragedy happens or even hurt, there are opportunities to demonstrate grace or to exact vengeance. I chose to demonstrate grace. The judge sentenced Swatzel with community service and a fine. Two years later, on the anniversary of June's death, Matt Swatzel went to the shop to buy a condolence card for Eric Fitzgerald. He pulls up in the car park. He gets out of his truck, and who we should be walking towards him out of the shop, but Eric Fitzgerald. Matt stood still. He froze. He didn't know what to do. And Eric turned around. He saw Matt, and he walked straight over to him. By the time Eric Fitzgerald got to Matt Sweffle, Matt says he was crying. Eric says he was sobbing his heart out. And so Eric gave him a hug. Matt said two years of guilt poured out of him. That was the biggest relief I'd ever felt, he said. Eric said he forgave me. Just hearing him say those words, it impacted my life completely. The two men talked for two hours. They stayed in touch. They met up regularly to talk about how they could both move forward from this tragedy. And they're still friends to this day. What does generosity really look like? What does it look like to you? What does it look like to me? What relationships are there in our lives where we can't move on because we are unable to show generosity, to forgive? What does it mean to be a generous church? We've explored this from a lot of different angles. I think it means grappling with questions like these, taking time with them, Really working on our responses to situations like this So that our behavior is changed So that we don't just learn more about what generosity might look like in practice, but we actually change our behavior We walk out of this room and we live more generously particularly when it's difficult Could you embrace a setnik? Could you offer a reduced sentence to a man who crashed a car and transformed your life? Can you extend your hand to your parent? Can you extend your hand to that really difficult work colleague? Can you show generosity when it's really difficult? Can I? One more verse and then we'll end. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, in chapter 5, we find what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's an incredible, radical, countercultural talk where Jesus stands up and he says, Everything is upside down. What you thought you knew about power, about position, about status, who you thought was in, who you thought were out. You've got it all wrong. And in the middle of this, we read these verses. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Showing grace, showing love praying for those we struggle with, showing generosity can sometimes be the most difficult thing in the world. But that is exactly what we are called to do. Flick and the band are going to come up. And we're going to end with a song, and the chorus of this song says, tear down the boundary walls, throw open all the doors, embrace the one and all here. Let's stand if we're able. Let's sing this song together. And then let's go out and live like it.